This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Several years ago, many people decided that being a contract worker was better than being an employee of the company. Sure, you had to pay for your health coverage, but the six-figure salaries, in some cases, seemed to make up for it. But that may be changing a little bit. We're going to delve into some interesting reporting uh, coming out of the Wall Street Journal. Lauren Weber is a reporter who was covering the story. She joins us on the phone, and in studio is Matthew Bidwell, who's a Wharton, Wharton School Associate Professor of Management. Lauren, great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Matt, great, great to see you, Matthew. Nice to see you. Thank you. Lauren, t- take us into your story and what you, were, uh, what you were looking for. Well, we've been reporting a year-long series on the rise of subcontracting and contract work. Um, more and more, you know, we've always had freelancers in the economy. We've always had um, people who are working at arm's length relationships with the companies that you know, whose work they're doing. But this is increasing as companies narrow in on what their core competency is and basically try to uh, shave off any kind of work that doesn't fit into that core, partly because in some cases it's cheaper. Often it's cheaper. They don't necessarily have to offer the level of benefits they're giving to their full-time employees if they're contracting out um, some kind of occupation or role. But the people, huh. the people that are doing this work, they see the benefits as being what? Well, there are, you know, as with any kind of labor market, it's stratified. So there are people who are lower-skilled contract workers who often don't have much choice in this matter, and they're just finding that whatever their occupation or role is is no longer a full-time employee, you know, regular, indefinite position. Uh, then there are the people who choose this kind of work because they like the flexibility or, you know, in many cases, if their skills, skills are in demand, they can, they can command a higher hourly rate than they would get otherwise, and it gives them, you know, the opportunity to you know, not necessarily have to stay in a particular company for very long, work on many different kinds of projects. You know, but it, again, it, you know, when we talk about the labor market, there's often at least two labor markets at play. There are the people whose skills are in demand and have a lot more bargaining power, and then there are those who don't, who you know, often kind of have to take what they can get. But you bring up in the article the, the culture around the employee who is a contract worker, especially if you're in an office setting, uh, can be negative at times. Well, this is what came up over and over again in my interview. So we did a, a story, the first one in this series, I wrote it in, and it came out in February. And it just looked at the rise of contracting, how more and more companies are uh, shedding more tasks and roles. So more people are working in these kind of non-traditional or alternative work arrangements. Uh, then that reporting got so much response from readers, and we also asked people to fill out a survey. And some of the over the a huge number of people wrote to us and talked about this idea of being second-class citizens in their workplace. Yeah. So often companies are bringing in contractors for a variety of reasons, sometimes to save money, sometimes because they need flexibility to scale up or scale down, uh, you know, depending on how a project is going, and more and more work is project-based today. Um, but often you had people doing very similar work, sometimes the same kind of work, sitting next to each other. One was a regular full-time employee. One was a contractor there for maybe a two-year assignment, maybe six months. And the contractor's experience of the workplace on a day-to-day basis was really one of second-class citizenship, a real caste system at work. Sometimes they couldn't, you know, they couldn't use the employee gym. They couldn't bring their kids to take your child to work day. Um, They couldn't access some of the same benefits. Often, you know, 
they didn't have a 401k, they didn't have the good health insurance. Maybe they were getting health insurance from the staffing agency that had placed them there, right. but often not nearly as good as the you know the benefits that the person at the, the client company was getting when they were a full-time employee. So Matthew, when you look at the kind of the state uh, of contract working, and, and I guess Studeri will focus on more of like the office jobs, what is the state of contract working today? I mean, are we on a rise up or are we kind of at a, at a level in terms of the numbers of people we're seeing going into this uh, on, a, on an annual basis? We don't have very good data on this. Um, I mean, so if you kind of cast back 20 years to the late 1990s, um, you know, then you had Fast Company, Free Agent Nation, everybody saying we're seeing this huge growth in contract working. And when you actually looked at the statistics of the government, brought out, there was no change between 95 and 2005. Um, one of the things that Lauren referenced in her article is there was a survey that came out last year that actually suggested we have seen quite a big increase in some of these contract um, contract positions, it's gone up from about 10% of the workforce, I think towards kind of the 15% mark right. um, since that time. So it, it does look like it's growing um, quite substantially. Not entirely clear what's driving that. You know, I think there's always been this kind of, you know, pendulum shift backwards and forwards with companies. Um, if you're the CFO, contractors look great, right? I mean, yeah. you, you don't have to pay them benefits. You have no long-term obligations to them. Um, they give you flexibility. And so you see most companies monitor their headcount very closely because they see that's kind of an indicator of fixed cost. Um, it's great having these people who aren't part of the headcount. But then you discover all of these hidden costs, you know, turnovers yeah. higher. Often you have to pay them more because they need some premium in order to come to work. And it's quite disruptive when you know, contractors move out. You have to bring somebody in and train them up again. So I think, you know, over time you've seen companies go backwards and forwards from this is great. We should do more of this to actually it turns out we have this enormous workforce that's kind of under the table yeah. as far as the organization is concerned. We're spending a lot of money on them. We don't know who they are. And then trying to actually clamp down again on managers' use of contract. But as, as I mentioned with Lauren a second ago, that, that, that issue surrounding the culture of the company, when you have some uh, employees who are contractors who are feeling kind of a negative impact from people that are full-time employees in the company, how prevalent do you think that issue is right now? It's a big deal. Um, you know, I think whenever you start designating different groups, it creates friction. I think there can also be a sense that I mean, we worry that contractors can feel threatening to regular employees. Um, right. There's a sense of, is my job going to be the next that's going to be contracted out? Um, I think also a lot of the issues that, that Lauren talks about are legal issues. So the, you know, the big problem for organizations is contractors are not supposed to be treated like employees. So in principle, you have a contractor because you don't want somebody who you can tell this is the kind of work, come, we'll chat, we'll meet on a regular basis and talk about how to do it. You have a contractor because there's a specific task that you're outsourcing completely to them and that you have no control over. So right. it's supposed to be very different from employment. In practice, most organizations end up managing contractors and employees fairly similarly. And so there are a lot of these bright lines in terms of benefits, in terms of training, being able to give performance evaluations, all of these sorts of things that they try to police very carefully 
to maintain these distinctions to try and clarify the legal boundaries between the contractors and the employees. One of the other examples you gave, Lauren, in the article, which I, I found interesting, is that there are people who end up being contractors with companies who cannot go to certain work meetings, which I, I, I found staggering in the fact that if you're trying to get work done within the company and being at that meeting may provide some benefit, that potentially a contractor may not be allowed because of uh, you know th that it's it's an employee based meeting. Yeah, it's for the same reason that Matthew just brought up, which is this legal issue. Some people listening in might remember the famous Microsoft case from the 90s, the Permatemp case, and that Microsoft ended up settling that case. It was brought by temps, freelancers who had been there for a long time and felt that they should have been classified as employees and had access to employee benefits. Um, Microsoft paid almost $100 million to settle that. That put every company on notice that their practices could be challenged if they were relying too much on contractors or treating them too much like employees. So that's why you get these sometimes absurd rules on what contractors can and can't do. But yeah, when you're letting, when, when you're not allowing people to come to meetings that might be like a business update or uh, something like that, and I heard many, many stories like that, you're making it harder for those contractors to actually get their work done. And, you know, I spoke to one person who said she had to eavesdrop on people talking about meetings afterwards, or she had to sort of develop her own sources within the company in order to ask them afterwards what had happened. And it just seems wildly inefficient. Now, you know, companies, again, they're, 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 many companies are very nervous. Many companies are also violating a lot of these rules. You know, there's good actors, bad actors. There's the ones that are just trying to do the right thing, and, you know, there are unintended consequences. But it does seem extremely inefficient in a lot of cases, and it adds to that sense of I'm both an insider and an outsider. I'm supposed to produce work as though I'm an insider, but I'm being kept on the outside. So to a degree, they, uh, th those people, the contractors, need their own version of a whistleblower to be able to find out some of that information they may be missing out on. Right. And then often, you know, many of them, many people come into contracting thinking it's a foot in the door to a company that they want to work for on a more consistent and permanent basis. Right. And... You know, they they find – I had several people who said, you know, I wasn't hired be, when I applied for a job at the company because I was told I didn't fit into the culture. Well, how are you supposed to fit into the culture when you're not allowed to go on team-building exercises and you're not allowed to go to the important meetings and right. you can't socialize with people in the cafeteria because you don't have access to that perk? So it puts a lot of people in a bind. Which, obviously, Matthew, it goes to the question of, of – what the mindset of the contractor is going into this job. Some of them, as Lauren mentioned, may feel like, okay, I could be potentially getting my foot in the door, but then I would, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would say at least half of them, probably three quarters of them are out the door in 12 months or 18 months, whatever the length of the contract is to begin with. It, it's almost giving these people at, to a degree, a false sense of security or, or job security. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly coming in as a contractor, the, Almost the way that a lot of these alternative work arrangements are defined is you don't have the expectation that your job will continue. Um, I think organizations vary substantially. So some companies may use this as how they hire. So they bring people on as contractors and the ones they like, they make permanent. Other organizations, yeah, I mean, so the, Lauren mentioned the famous case of Microsoft where it is this kind of class system. Um, and if you're a contractor, you're just treated very differently and unlikely to make the leap. I mean, I think it is worth also saying 
there are some contractors who quite like this. So when, when you go out and talk to people about why they're contractors, um, you know, a theme for many of them is they get frustrated by organizations. They get frustrated by the politics. They get frustrated by the meetings. They get frustrated by the nonsense. Yeah. They want to be left alone to just do their work. Sure. Um, yeah. And so there are certainly this some proportion of the contract workforce. Actually, this is, this is a feature, not a bug that actually the capacity to just get the work done without being pulled into all these other things can be attractive. That's probably, you know, that's some sub subset that really opt into contracting as something that, you know, is a nice way to get their work done as an expert. I think one of the things Lauren highlights is a lot of people who are contracting these days, they're not doing it because they have some passion for contracting. Right. They're doing it because for the kind of job that they want, this company, the only way they can get in is as a contractor. 844-942-7866 is the number if you'd like to join in. I'd love to hear from some contractors out there that have maybe experienced this type of uh, feeling in the office. 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Is there an expectation, Matthew, that, that these numbers are going to radically shift one way or another in terms of contractors and the percentage that companies use contractors in the future. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's going to dwindle down anytime in the, in the, in the, in the near future and more so it may even go a little bit higher. I think so. I mean, I'm obviously very nervous about making predictions, yeah. um, you know, after the kind of, 1990s and 2000s where the numbers stayed stable i was very negative about all these people saying oh this is a huge growing area and now it is so um so who knows i think some of it will have to do with legal enforcement so the um you know the previous administration one of their priorities was around companies that were bringing in independent contractors into employee roles yeah. um, and their view was like no, that that's not right i mean obviously once you're classified as a contractor, you are um, you're outside a bunch of the employment protections. Um, you're under a different tax code. All of those sorts of things, um, and contracting shouldn't be a means for companies to stage an end run around a bunch of laws that are there because we believe that fundamentally, most often employers have much more power in the bargaining relationship than employees, and we want to um, we want to even that up a certain amount. That you know. The, I think the issue is, as as Laura mentioned, you know, a lot of the times companies are using contractors in ways that are you know, on the wrong side of the law. So you know, yeah. we want somebody who's an employee or doing all the work they would as an employee in the same way as an employee, but we want to make it very easy to get rid of them in six or nine months' time. Yeah, That is not necessarily how the law intends contractors to be used. And so you know, ideally we would update the law um, getting anything through <laughs> Congress these days, not necessarily easy. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, with the different administrations, how fierce they are on that is going to have at least some impact on this market. Lauren? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that um, one, one common reaction we've had to the stories in the series is, well, no one has job security anymore. You know, so the, the kind of insecurity that contractors labor under, you know, may not be all that unusual and it may not be all that different from regular employees. I just don't think that's true. I mean, yes, companies now use layoffs far more easily or quickly than they might have 30 years ago when that was really considered more of an emergency 
uh, strategy um, when things were really bad. But when you're an employee, you do have an HR department who's you know, nominally looking after your interests. You have relationships in a company. You have, there's still cultural, there are still norms within companies that if we're going to lay people off, we're going to give them severance, we're going to maybe give them some outplacement assistant, yeah. assistance, you know, and it's, it is, companies realize that layoffs are very bad for morale. Contractors, it is built into those contracts, whether it's between an independent contractor and a, and a client or between a staffing agency that's providing 30 people to do a certain task or, you know, a contract agency that's just going to say, look, we're going to take over your mailroom and we're going to manage it for, for the, you know, indefinitely. Those are all contract relationships. It's built in that um, these are at-will contracts, as most employment is. But I've spoken to people who, you know, were contractors they had an awkward meeting in the morning with somebody at their client company. They were fired that night. You know, men, this was a really common theme with the contractors I spoke to. You just never know if you're going to come in that day and either be told your project is ending and there's no, don't come into work tomorrow, or you're going to be told we don't like the way you comb your hair, <laughs> you know, so please don't come in tomorrow. You're no longer needed. So it, it is really like a much more precarious situation than somebody who has a regular employment relationship. I find it interesting that when you talk about the dynamic within the office, Lauren, I mean, you're talking about, in some cases, uh, they talk about whether or not you should build relationships with people that you work with, you know, to have those relationships outside. The, the questions back and forth about whether that's a good thing or not have been, you know, been going back and forth for quite some time. Here's a situation where some people may not be as willing to kind of reach out to somebody who is a contract worker because they may know that that person might be gone in six months. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very obvious because, People are many people in workplaces today wear badges, and that's one way that companies enforce this distinction. And this came up over and over again in my interviews. You know, you're wearing a different colored badge uh, if you're a contractor, and so people can just take one look at you and sort of know which bucket to put you in, and you know, know whether or not you're someone they want to invest in a relationship with. And the feeling for contractors that I spoke to often was, you know, somebody would look at my badge, see that I was a contractor, and just look right past me. Um, you know, we don't want to think that's really how it works in right. the workplace, but uh, it was a very common experience from people I talked to. But that has to go to the camaraderie that you, that companies try to establish within the office, Matthew. I mean, you want to build that up because you want to have an organization that is working at its ultimate across every division. Not that you're going to get that, but that could be something that could hinder it a little bit. Oh, definitely. And, you know, in, in principle, you kind of think the contractors should be outside that kind of, you know, Again, in an in an ideal world, you're using contractors for these very kind of separate, discrete tasks yeah. where they're not really part of the organization. In reality, that's not how they're being used. And you know, one thing you also see in organizations is that it's kind of very different agendas for contractors at different levels. At least mm -hmm. something I've seen is you see kind of at senior levels, they quite like the idea of all of these contractors. Um, so kind of finance likes the idea of the flexibility. And so you kind of prevent people hiring, make sure they use lots of contractors. Legal is vaguely horrified. Yeah. Um, puts yeah. in all of these restrictions about how they can be used, um, which is what Lauren's talking about. And then you've got the poor frontline manager who just wants yeah. to get the work done. Yeah. Um, and so they're under these pressures from all these people. So you know, either you end up with a dysfunctional work unit, which is one thing, 
the other thing that I think happens in a lot of organizations is just also the, the frontline managers quietly ignore everything that legal is saying <laughs> to them and basically just end up treating these contractors like employees. So then where do you think the change needs to be made in terms of of, of treating these people maybe in a little bit of a different manner? I mean, you mentioned the managers. I was thinking about that. Is it HR? Where where does the shift you think need to take place? Um. I think it is very difficult under the current legal regime that, um, I mean, ultimately organizations either need to roll back their use of contractors or be a lot more thoughtful about where they use contractors and where they don't. So they're in roles where it is more obviously separated out. But I think, you know, in the current legal regime to bring contracts in and then thoroughly integrate them into the organization, that is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Lauren? Yeah, I, I, I expect that this trend will continue, um, in part because I think large staffing and outsource service providers have seen that there's a big market here. And so they're, they're developing new parts of their business where they can go to companies and say, hey, let us take this over for you. Let us run your mailroom. Let us, um, you know, do this, do your entire call center operation. So, I, you know, I think this will all continue. In terms of how to make it work better, I, you know, there, there's been a big movement, movement in Silicon Valley to make sure that contractors to big tech firms like Google and Facebook and Apple, like the shuttle drivers who take employees from San Francisco out to the campuses in Silicon Valley. There have been movements to either try to unionize them or improve their working conditions. And those are making an impact. Um, Microsoft also just, I think maybe a couple of years ago actually, made a rule that any company that's doing substantial vendor, doing a, in a substantial vendor relationship with them or third party you know, contracting relationship with them has to provide their employees with at least 15 days of paid time off a year. Yeah. So there, I think the client companies, especially in the world of technology employment, are, are realizing they need, they have a role to play in making these jobs better. Uh, how, go ahead, Matthew. I mean, I, I think that's right. On the other hand, I think, you know, in many ways, part of the attraction of contracting in the first place has been the ability to um, slough off these responsibilities onto somebody else. That, right. Whereas before, you know, if I'm Microsoft and my employees, my janitors and Microsoft employees, I feel some responsibility to make sure they have decent terms and conditions. Once I contract them out, hey, it's somebody else's problem. So it, it, yeah, it's nice that they're beginning to recognize a bit more of those responsibilities. But I think, you know, they're undoing a vast amount of damage, at least in terms of kind of pay inequality and so on, that was really done in the first place by a lot of this contract. And, and, and probably part of it also is the, just the mindset of the contract employee himself or herself going into this. They probably have the expectation, OK, I understand contracts nine months. You know, I'm going to do yeah. this job and, and I'm going to be leaving. But once you get in there and you are treated like an employee, it's a change of mindset that it's then hard for that contractor to go back to where they were before. Yep. Yep. Certainly. It's, 
it's a confused world of work out there these days. Yeah. Lauren, is the, is the expectation that uh, that you're going to continue to see the reactions from people range in terms of, you know, the, the people that are doing this contract work? You know, many of them are, are going to probably feel like, OK, I don't have to worry about it. It's six months, nine months, whatever it might be. But you're probably going to see a lot of people, as we just said, that that are going to probably feel like they're part of the company as well. Yeah, you know, the, the, the experiences that I hear about are, are mixed, and the reactions that I've gotten to my stories have been mixed, uh, you know, with some people saying, this has worked out great for me, and other people saying, I really hope that, you know, one of these days I'll be able to get a regular job and not have to deal with this kind of insecurity all the time. Great having you both with us. Uh, thank you, Lauren, for joining us on the phone. Thanks. Thank you, Matthew. Great seeing you again. Thank, Thank you for you coming in. Lauren Weber from The Wall Street Journal. Matthew Bidwell from right here at the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.